This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him in their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. Well, this past Sunday was the third Sunday in Ordinary Time, which means it was the Sunday for the Word of God. That's a new feast that we have in the last few years. And I always like to take a little bit of time and focus on our relationship to Scripture in that time. Um, Didn't get to do it last week. We had other things going on, but I wanted to make sure the next couple of weeks we spent some time focusing specifically on Scripture. So today our guest is Dr. John Martins. He's the Professor of Theology and Director of the Center for Christian Engagement at St. Mark's College at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, just over the border from me in Canada. For four years, he wrote the scripture column, The Word at America Magazine, and has also written extensively on children in early Christianity, including Let the Little Children Come to Me, Children and Childhood in Early Christianity, and Children and Methods, Listening to and Learning from Children in the Biblical World. He's also the editor of an amazing new study Bible, the Liturgy and Life Study Bible from Liturgical Press, and he joins us today to talk about Pope Francis' specific use of scripture around the theme of mercy and why the idea of mercy sometimes makes us uncomfortable. Dr. John Martin, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, It's nice to see you. It'd be better to see you live and in person, which we will do again someday. As you say, we live so close to each other, but I think we met in person the last time in Omaha in Nebraska. Omaha, last time Santa Clara before that. It's like I have to travel across the country (laughs) to be in the same room as you. Uh, Dr. Martins, of course, is a member of the Catholic Biblical Association, CBA of America, and also... uh, we run into one another from time to time at the Society of Biblical Literature. That's right. So so good to have you here. Uh, I you. do want to talk to you as we get into our Patreon segment later, as we're doing that special segment for uh, the, the show supporters. I do want to talk to you about the theme of children in the biblical world. Yeah. But here in this early segment, let's talk about Pope Francis' use of scripture. You you were talking, you you had a couple of things recently, a piece in America Magazine uh, at the yeah. beginning of the month in January, and then another uh, podcast where you were talking about this. I'm interested in the kind of the signals that Pope Francis gave us early in his pontificate on this theme of mercy. So, so introduce us maybe to the way that he uses scripture. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think th- there's no question he's not a, a systematic thinker. I think mm-hmm. in the same way uh, that we got used to that with uh, St. John Paul II, with uh, Pope Benedict, uh, both scholars, and maybe one could argue Benedict more of the academic, but they were both scholars and really systematic thinkers in terms of their encyclicals, in terms of the way they thought. Benedict, for those who don't know, is a very good biblical scholar as well, apart from his three-part book on Jesus. Uh, he's written some good stuff on how to interpret the Bible as well, which I'd highly recommend to people. I do think Francis is more pastoral, and I think he's can often be in the moment uh, when he speaks to people and, and, and when he discusses scripture. But like every pope, uh, I mean, he's steeped in scripture and he loves scripture. And what I noticed, I was writing for America when that initial interview came out, um, a big heart open to God that he, that he um, conducted with Antonio Spadaro, uh, an, another Jesuit who um, 
was the editor for a long time of the uh, Italian Jesuit magazine, La Civiltà Cattolica. I might have mispronounced that, but at any rate, in that interview, the, there was a real focus on healing and the church's field hospital. And as I read through it, and I was writing for America at the time, and there was great excitement at America because there was a Jesuit pope, and I don't know that anyone could really believe it. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is among the Jesuits. Uh, but, you know, I, I was just sort of paying attention to what, what are the biblical themes. That was my task there. Uh, writing the scripture column, and I'd done that before online for them as well. And so I'm always interested in where scripture emerges and how it's used. And I, I simply saw a number of things. One, he cites, of course, and that's Matthew 9 mm -hmm. at the beginning, that finger of Jesus pointing at me, uh, or that finger of, um, of Jesus pointing at Matthew, that's me. I feel like him. He identifies with the sinner who's called by Jesus. And then I thought the, the field hospital image really clearly was pointing to the Good Samaritan. It, he, he didn't mention it by name, but I thought that was really clear there. And then at the very end of that interview, he pointed to Emmaus, uh, you know, uh, this road to Emmaus. And that's Luke 24, uh, where, you know, people's hearts are burning as Jesus walks alongside them, but they don't recognize him. And it was in that Pulling that all together, I, I thought it was really intriguing, the Emmaus um, sort of mentioned, because it wasn't a citation. And I thought, yeah, that, that encounter is what you need, that encounter with Christ. Uh, and I just thought, you know, he's really pointing to mercy as that step, as that essential step to encounter Christ. And it was really exciting to write that piece. It was gathered up with a number of other pieces from America Magazine to a little book called A Big Heart Open to God, the same name as the interview. Um, but I just see Francis really pastoral in his use of Scripture and really focused on the need to bring people into that encounter and mercy being the essential first step. And initially I thought, you know, for people who don't know Christ, and then I realized the more I listened to him, he's pushing those of us who are in the church, whether on the fringes or in the center, to really challenge ourselves. You know, are we, are, are we encountering that mercy? Are we sharing that mercy with others? Even the three examples you give uh, are are intriguing to me because in those moments, Jesus in all three cases is making someone uncomfortable. Right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> by by going and calling the tax collector, the the, the traitor to the people, right? Yeah. Uh, he is making people uncomfortable. And of course, Pope Francis identifies with with Matthew in that regard, that uh, and even the papal motto that he took on comes That's from right. that that calling of Matthew that he looked at him in mercy and chose him. Yeah. In the in the second of the Good Samaritan story, Jesus is making the people who are asking the person asking him the question, who is my neighbor? He's making him uncomfortable by forcing him into a new framework for what it means to be loving yeah. to a neighbor and holding him accountable to that, that contextualizing the scripture and the, the second greatest commandment in a way that that person was not ready to receive. And then again with the, the, those on the road to Emmaus, they're looking at him like he's a little bit crazy. Who yeah. are you that you, what rock have you been hiding under that you yeah. haven't heard the things that have gone on? And he again contextualizes scripture for these people who were the righteous ones, the ones who yeah. had been following him, uh, disciples who were 
in the companionship of the apostles uh, and walking with them and saying, okay, you really don't understand any of this scripture. Let me start from the beginning and unpack it for you. So as as much as Jesus makes those in the story uncomfortable, Pope Francis sometimes can can make those in the church also a little bit uncomfortable uh, with the choices that he's made and the, the stories that he's told and the places he's reached out to. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. I think you make a really good point. I, I'm not sure I'd pulled together all three of those passages in terms specifically of the discomfort being caused and very often discomfort being caused to religious experts. Mm-hmm. And th- this is one thing where I think he's really challenging those of us and I, I who are within the church and who might even consider ourselves experts at some level to say, uh, are, are you living this out? Are you, and, and I really like your point about recontextualizing them because I think that's what Jesus is doing too, right? He's not saying, oh no, you don't have to love God anymore. You don't have to love your neighbor. He's right. not saying that at all. He's saying, in fact, here's another way to look at that. The scripture is being fulfilled here. We're, we're not casting it aside, but in fulfilling that and in encountering it, you might be made uncomfortable. And I know I have. I mean, it, and it's simple things like, am I willing to forgive people who have hurt me? You know, I might think, well, I'm not doing any major things. I haven't killed anyone in my entire life. You know, <laughs> I, I, I'm not a murderer. Um, but it, it's it's something that's really intriguing too, because, you know, when I, I was thinking about saints and how great saints historically when you read their stories and you know thinking of desert fathers and the desert mothers how they they talk about how how far they are you know from god and how they feel like that they're not fulfilling uh the law perfectly and i think wow they're not putting on a show they mean it they 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 want to strive to be closer to god they want to strive for that relationship to grow but um they know god loves them they know God's merciful. They know that they can come back. And, and I think Francis is really challenging all of us, wherever we are in our lives, to remember, like, it's not a one-and-done sort of deal, right? It, it, mercy is something we constantly need. We have to constantly be thinking about how do we get closer to God? How do we more fully live out our faith? And, and again, I don't think of this in a sense of, Oh, woe is me. I'm, I'm so horrible. I mean, there are times when you need to challenge yourself and say, I need to change. But I, I think it's to recognize the overwhelming love of God and that God desires us to do it because God's love is what really is fulfilling and what we really ought to be aiming for. Yeah. I, I think of this passage in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus is with the disciples. And, and I, th- I, I'm pretty sure that I'm getting the details right, but I'm doing this from memory, so I'm, I might get yeah. something a little bit out of order here. I understand that. <laughs> yeah. Jesus is in in the boat with the disciples, and a storm comes up, and the disciples are certain that they're going to die. And yeah. Jesus calms the storm, and they see Jesus calm the storm, and they're amazed that even the wind and the waves obey him. And then they land on the shore, and immediately, because Mark likes that word immediately. He does. <laughs> he loves it. And immediately, they're met with uh, the demoniac who's in living on the shore, living away from the people, and uh, Jesus frees that person. And 
basically calms another storm. And then yeah. immediately they're pressed in around a crowd and well, a person comes up and says, my, my child is dying. Come and save my child. And on the way there, Jesus stops in the middle and says, somebody touch me. Right. Yeah. And, and heals the woman. And then immediately the people come to him and say, your child has died. And he goes and then raises that child from it's like this climax after climax after climax of discomfort after discomfort after discomfort. Uh, and seeing that in the midst of that chaos and that stress that Christ brings restoration and healing and order to that chaos. If that's how Jesus forms and trains his disciples who are with him, why do we expect comfort upon comfort upon comfort? <laughs> yeah, it, 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 that's really nicely put. I, I mean, yeah, there is that comfort in returning to Christ, but I think it really does mean, though, to recognizing when that discomfort's there and what it's teaching us. Uh, and that, you know, he, he, he goes into the midst of the commotion, right? And, and because I, I believe this is Mark five, right? The, uh, the, the woman with the hemorrhage and then, mm -hmm. uh, Jairus's daughter. And it, I mean, it, it is chaotic. The crowds, the people reaching out, people who shouldn't be reaching out to touch him, you know, might seem out of order, if not according to law, then maybe out of order just according to how you treat, you know, a great teacher in, in your midst. But it, it it's something where he, yeah, he refuses to turn away from people in need. And I, I know that in that desire for comfort, I, I understand you know, a desire or a longing uh, in some ways for a deep peace. But I think it can also indicate us turning away from where the need is, where healing needs to take place, where we might need to be a part of that process of healing taking place, either for others or for ourselves. And I do think that creates discomfort. I I know in my own self, I, I think, even at the age I'm at, and I'm getting, <laughs> getting a little older here, should know better, you feel like, but even in my own growth, I think, Oh, I, I, now it'll all be well. Everything will be well. And, you know, you deal with, you have to deal with that reality. And what is God teaching us about what really matters? Because there's been times in my life where, you know, even in the midst of when I think, oh, things are going well for me, it's not just that, you know, something might happen, like you might get a, you know, a, a diagnosis of an illness or something like that, or, or someone else is harmed. But where I realize my focus is on financial security and not spiritual growth they're not getting closer to god just taking just putting too much on myself you know and and i've got to have the answers and i've got to be the person who makes everything well and in fact it's then that i think it's in that discomfort i think you're right that you need to recognize what is god saying to me how how am i being taught here and and you know i'll go back to mercy here it's where i think when you recognize it, 
God's not pushing you away saying you should have known by this point, but he's saying you can still learn here. You can still grow through this. Uh, you can come closer to me through this discomfort. I'm still here to heal. But I, but as you say, and one of the great things about all the Gospels, but I, I see it most fully in Mark, just because of the Spartan narrative as you've described mm-hmm. it, and that immediately and that, that action just driving forward, where there is this inability at times to recognize who's in their midst, even when they're physically with him. And I think I've always thought of Mark as a as a real instruction manual for disciples. People sometimes say about Mark, oh, the disciples are dull and they don't get it. And I think, yeah, do I get it? I've read this yeah. gospel yeah. hundreds of times and how many times do I not get it? So I, I think it's a, I love reading it because it's a constant, for me, teaching tool, uh, not for others, but for myself as to how how to fully live out discipleship and, you know, to turn from fear to faith, right? That mm-hmm. it's fear, not doubt. It's, it's, it's fear about what, you know, status, money, all kinds of things. And it really rests elsewhere. It rests in Christ. It rests in love of God. Yeah. There's a phrase that gets used that the church uh, is ever ancient, ever new. And I tend to, uh, as I'm examining my own life of faith, I tend to hold up that picture and say, these ideas that I have about faith, this understanding that I have about the doctrine or the dogma of the church, uh, have I re-examined any of this lately? Mm. Have I held this up to scrutiny to the magisterium? Have I held this up to scrutiny to scripture? Not to question the the doctrine or the dogma, but to question, do do I have some disciple-like assumptions about what Christ is doing like the disciples, might not be 100% correct. Right. And the renewing of that vision. Yeah, it, it's, yeah, I, I, I mean, it's a, it's a real process. It, it's, it's if, for me, it's that constant recognition that mercy is is something I need. And, and I, I'm just returning to that because it is, of course, on my mind because of recent writing and thinking about that. But what, do I need to be as a disciple? And and as you say, it's not about questioning dogma. It's not about questioning doctrine for me. I'm speaking for myself here. It's really about how do I enact this? How do I live this out? How do I make it a real part of my daily life and, and my deepening uh, walk with God? How do I, in the moment when, you know, I'm angry with someone, I'm upset about a situation am I able to go back and say, what What should a disciple do here? And, and this might mean you might run up, you know, up against something uh, where someone else is, you know, running counter to the teachings of the church. I, I think, I mean, at a personal level, I, I'm not great at confronting people, but I'm not convinced that confront confrontation, especially with people that you don't know well, is necessarily the right way uh, to go about getting to know them, getting closer to them, and ultimately helping uh, them as a guide. And so I, I really think 
it's for me a matter of how do I live this out so that people recognize in me the love of God and the love of neighbor. Uh, how can how can I best do that? Uh, and I, I've loved the language. <laughs> I know that um, you know Pope Francis has has bothered some people. You know, he says you got stop being sour pusses. And mm-hmm. and, and I know uh, I'm I don't know what that language is in Spanish or Italian, but I do think he's pointing to live out the joy of the gospel. If the gospel brings joy, if this is the goal for which we are meant, right, uh, that we're created to be with God, why don't we live out that joy? Mm-hmm. And then that's a question for me, by the way, not yeah. for you, your audience. And I, and I mean that seriously. I, I feel like I need to do better. Uh, mm-hmm. And I don't feel, again, I, I think what's so, the one thing I have learned is that God wants me to do better. God desires it for me because that's what I should be doing. Well, and he even says that, uh, that, that your joy may be full, right? I right. tell you these things that your, that your joy may be full. And so for us to be weighed down by anxiety, uh, I mean, Paul gives really explicit instructions, mm-hmm. be anxious for nothing, right? Mm-hmm. But in everything with prayer and thanksgiving, uh, present your request to God. Uh, we spend so much time in anxiety or in worry or in trying to control things that aren't ours to control that we miss out on that abandonment to divine providence to, to let God be God and for us to be those who follow. Yeah. And, and, and it's interesting too, because I mean, I also, I know that Paul himself struggled with anxiety from his own letters because he says, I'm anxious for all of my churches. So, I mean, he, it's not like these struggles, here we go back to your, you know, the, the phrase of ever ancient, ever new, right? I mean, Paul is absolutely right. And he also talks about, you know, I have anxiety for all my churches, but he knows, he knows uh, where the truth lies and that he's got to live through uh, his trust in God and that God's plan will be um, brought to fulfillment. It is, um, yeah, I, I mean... Paul is sort of a, a great example of the man who just keeps moving forward, right? He, there's stumbles, there's trials. I think he uses all these words in Second Corinthians, tribulations, beatings, all of it. Um, but he knows that when he is weak, then he is strong because he has he's living through Christ then. Mm-hmm. So let's talk uh, about mercy. In your in your recent piece, uh, I think January 5th over on America Magazine, you talked right. about um, that when we look at mercy, sometimes we are uncomfortable because in order for us to to acknowledge the mercy given, it can shake our our system of confidence that we have created for ourselves. Like yeah. if we if I have the the system of you know, read the catechism and I read the the documents and I look at all of these things and say, I'm good. Right. Yeah. Like, like the, going back to that first uh, passage that you brought up, like the man who comes to Jesus and asks the question, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, how do you read the commandments? And yeah. he says, it, he says, all of these things I have done. And I think we find ourselves in that place. We've got this, this system. Uh, we have heard homilies that have built us up and we're like, yeah, I'm good. All of these things I have done, 
And then Jesus presses mercy a little bit further. And we run the risk of being in that same place with that questioner of walking away sad because of not being willing to let go of the, that confidence, that system of confidence that we've created. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think that part of, part of the issue as I see it is that we become confident in ourselves and not in God. We become confident that we have done what's needed and it's easy to look at other people. And, and I, really wanted to write this piece because I really think where you see polar you can see polarization in the church and things like that and people you're not really a Catholic you're not really a Catholic you see this from all angles and all sides and I think when you recognize in yourself hey I'm not fulfilling all of the commandments as well as I ought to I'm not living them out as fully as I need to I think the more that you recognize, I need this mercy because I I stumble. I need to be picked up. I need to be picked up by my friends. I need to be picked up by my family. And of course, ultimately, I need um, Christ to pick me up. But I can think of times uh, in my life um, where a good friend of mine, when I was living in Toronto, challenged me as, as to how I was living. I was so angry at him <laughs> for doing it. And he was right. And I was able to go back and tell him, you were right. And um, it happened again in Winnipeg when um, I'd gotten to know Larry Hurtado, who, who died a couple of years ago, yeah. a, a great biblical scholar. We became friends. And, and he told me at one point, he said, you need to put your life in order. Uh, and I was, I was angry with Larry. I was like, <laughs> I don't need to hear anything from you. you know, but, but it's, it's sort of, when people challenge you like that, they are the voice of God speaking to you, and and you and you recognize I need to shift, but also I know God is willing to accept me, and, and willing to help me, and I need that mercy. And I think whenever I feel like I'm complete or I've done it all, you know, there's that Matthew five forty eight: be perfect as God is perfect. And, and the Greek word there, teleos, is complete or, or full. Right. And of course, that's what we strive to be. But this side of heaven, we're not there. <laughs> and I think it's that recognition, and that can destabilize us because we think, oh, more? <laughs> right. and, and I think, yeah, uh, you know, and um, it, it's a, it's a process, but I think the more... I can grasp God's love working in me the more I can understand this is a process that only has at its at, at its heart my eternal life. <laughs> right. Well, on the opposite side of that, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, you have the passage of Scripture that says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Mm. And so to hold those two things in detention and to say, yes, I have to pursue holiness and I am incapable of doing it on my own. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's beautiful. That, that, it's exactly right. Mercy is the acknowledgement that we can do nothing on our own, but that God is here for us. And we continue to move forward to do our best yeah. <laughs> with, with God at our side. Yeah. Yeah. We're talking today with Dr. John Bartons, professor of theology and director of the Center for Christian Engagement at St. Mark's College at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. We're talking about mercy and about Pope Francis' use of Scripture, specifically around the themes of mercy 
Come be a part of the ongoing conversation over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls on threads. The handle is at step outside the walls and don't go anywhere because there is so much more to this conversation right after this break. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, TL. We're talking today with Dr. John Martins, professor of theology and director of the Center for Christian Engagement at St. Mark's College at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. Uh, we are talking about the use of scripture, Pope Francis' use of scripture, specifically around the themes of mercy. Uh, Dr. Martins recently wrote a piece for America Magazine back, I think, January 5th. You can find it through the archives, but there's not really a good search function, so you're just going to have to kind of click more several <laughs> times until you find it. Or you can Google Google his name and Google America Magazine, and it'll bring up all of his previous pieces. Dr. Martins, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I really appreciate it. I would also say search for my name with a w yes um so i i i didn't grow up as a catholic i i grew up actually in a mennonite family but my mother loved the wesleys so my middle name is actually wesley john wesley martin so that w uh will, will bring you to the peace in america more easily <laughs> so we're talking about mercy and specifically this idea that mercy is not uh, an abstract, but mercy is a thing, not that I needed way back when, before I was brought into the sacramental life, but mercy is a thing that I need right now at this moment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but mercy is not just for me, like the, the workers in the vineyard who started late in the day, the payment is the same regardless of when you started. And the mercy that is given is the same regardless of where you start. And sometimes there is a, a reaction to or an, a discomfort with God giving mercy to people who don't have their life together yet, which is kind of yeah. funny because, I mean, that's what mercy is in its essence. <laughs> exactly. I, I think there's maybe a, a concern that we don't go this the, the way that so many people do of saying, oh, if you just follow Jesus, all your problems are going to be solved, right. um, that we let people know Hey, there is a, a life of commitment and discipleship and things to go on. But I think sometimes we front load it with, this is all the work that you have to do. Yeah. And we miss the fact that it starts with the encounter with the person of Christ, with the mercy being extended. And, and we have to be that minister of reconciliation that, that hands or, or serves that mercy to the people who are around us. Yeah. And I think that that's right. And, and I think that there's a sense. You know, I've had it myself, and I've had to challenge myself about it. That, you know, well, maybe I'm I'm a little better, and so I'm worthy of mercy. And I know it sounds like it, it, you know, it, it's it, it's not sensible when you think about what mercy is—this gratuitous outpouring of God's love on those who are not worthy. But it, it, there is a sense sometimes. Well, yeah, but that person really doesn't deserve it. They really ought not to have it. And I, I think that we downplay our own need, our own constant need, the need we had when it was perhaps first, you know, poured over us, and 
times when we first experienced it. But I, I do think that it can be a challenge. And it, the reality is there are people who, who I know live better lives than others. They're kinder to people. They're more generous to people. It, mm-hmm. They they don't break the law. They don't steal. You know, and it, and and you know you, when you compare at a human level, you're like, yeah, that's a good person. And so we want, of course, to live that out as fully as we can in each of our lives. But I think when we come to that point where we think, but nobody else should should have this mercy, uh, no one else deserves this mercy. Um, let, let's go yeah. to the Gospel of Matthew, yeah. uh, to the story of the prodigal son, yeah. where you have two sons who are deeply in need of their father's mercy. Yeah. And and the one son says, I've done all this work for you. I've been here and you've not given me so much as a young goat, mm-hmm. right? I've, I've done all of these things. I have picked myself up and tried to follow the rules. And yeah, maybe I fell down, but now I'm standing upright and I'm coming to you for mercy. That person is still in the gutter. Look at all the things that they did. Why would you give that person mercy? And I think we see that story playing out over and over and over again. And I know when I first started to read that story as a young person, I thought, I, you know, and, and maybe it's the title given to it, the prodigal son, because it's two sons, right? And, and the question is, you know, one of them is quite clearly far from God. And he acknowledges that and says, you know, I'm, I'm just going to come back and throw myself on my God's mercy. The older son, though, has been nurturing grievances and, and maybe even nurturing stories about how bad his brother is, you know. Um, you know, he claims he's been spending all his money on prostitutes. I don't know if he knows that or if he's, you know, making, you know, creating an, a, you know, an actual just story to make it worse, to make his, his younger brother worse. But he really feels like, mm-hmm. you know, he the, the younger brother doesn't deserve it. But the thing is, he's been close to his father all along if he would recognize it, right? He's had this all uh, if he would recognize it. But I, I, you know, it is a classic story, right? Uh, of, I mean, within the Christian tradition, but I think it's a story that sort of permeates, you know, even beyond the Christian tradition, people get that story. <laughs> they really yeah. do. Uh, I'm curious about the line there in that story that the father the father tells the older son after the grievances have been aired. He says, while you were with me, everything that I had was yours, mm-hmm. right? I wonder how often we miss what that everything entails. Yeah. What does it mean for us to be with the father and everything that he has is ours? Of course, we could point to the sacramental life and to the Eucharist and to, to all of these other things, but I wonder if there may be something else as well, being made sharers in the divine nature, if we also are supposed to share with the Father his mercy. Yeah. Not only to be recipients of it, to be, but to be sharers of it as well. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree. And it's, I, I will say this, there is a passage that Pope Francis has come back to over and over from Matthew, and it's only found in Matthew, and it's the um, parable of the unmerciful slave or unmerciful servant. It's Matthew 18, um, towards the end of Matthew 18, I think, uh, 21 to 35. And in that parable, it, it, it's it's sort of, it, I, I love teaching this parable with my students because, you know, the unmerciful slave is is owed three months wages, the, about the equivalent three months wages. 
and you know the you know and the the story begins with him being forgiven like 10,000 talents and a talent is like 15 years wages so i did little calculations for my students on the basis of what does someone make you know in a, in a year today and so if we calculated 15 times that and then by 10,000 and we got into the billions of dollars so God forgives us debt of billions of dollars, to put it in our own terms. And then, because he pleaded, because he asked for mercy. And then when a fellow servant, you know, says, will you forgive my debt? You know, this this amount, three months. It's not nothing. It's some money that he right. owes him. And he's like, no. And, and I think it really does point to the merciful nature of, of God and the focus that we have more on making it just and making it fair. And Francis has come back to that a few times saying, you know, and, and at first when I read Francis on this, I wasn't sure, uh, but he said, you know, God's concerned more with mercy. Human beings are concerned more with justice. And I think in that Matthew 18 parable, it really comes to the fore. There's more of this focus that we have on, mm -hmm. but you owe me. But what we owe God is unpayable, right? I mean, that's the whole point of it. And and and, and God's mercy just extends and wipes it all away. Um, and I think that it is something that we have to constantly give. Like, God's mercy doesn't take away from our own mercy. The love of God poured mm -hmm. out on our neighbor doesn't take away from our the love God pours on us. I have wondered specifically about that story. If the the servant who refuses to forgive the other, the one who has been forgiven so much, if there is at least in some part a, a, a disbelief that God's mercy is actually that deep, a disbelief that the person could actually forgive him that full amount and a worry that he's going to come back and request it again. And so he's trying to get his own accounts. I'm going to get this three months just so that I have the ability to pay a little bit back so I can feel good about myself because, you know, if he comes back, there's no, no way I could ever repay. And I, I wonder if in some yeah. sense, when we are seeking justice in for, for someone else, yeah, right? yeah. you, you we, we got to hold you to the letter of the law. I think in some way, maybe we're worried that that's going to come for us as well. And so we've got to show that we're very good at keeping those rules and following those laws. That's interesting. Otherwise, when that mercy doesn't come to us, we can at least have something to hold up. Yeah, that's interesting. So there's just a little something you have in, in your back pocket, even if it doesn't fulfill all of it or all of the, right. all of the debt. That That's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a, it's a really uh, challenging parable in many many ways um you know you but mercy is at the heart of this right as well and it, i guess it's it's the absurdity that whatever we can collect will ever come close right to to, mm -hmm. to paying what we need and th there is yeah it, it's it, it's so hard though on human terms it can be so difficult i i i'm someone who really likes it to be fair i want people to follow the rules i i'm yeah it, it, it 
I, I sense it in myself, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so I, I think in, in so many ways, whenever you write something, you write for yourself. And I, I feel like Pope Francis has really spoken to me from the beginning of his pontificate. And I know different, different popes, different thinkers speak to different people. But I think he's spoken to me because it's been a challenge to me and it has unsettled me as well in thinking I'm... Yeah. I'm in such good shape now and I'm, I'm doing so well. And then it's like, Oh, uh, there, there's a challenge here to, to really continue to get closer to God and to let God work in one's life and, and to, to really lean on, on, on the mercy of Christ. Well, and just to end today, the, um, uh, with the passage out of the Beatitudes, out of the gospel of Matthew, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Yeah. You know, we, we get so worried that, well, maybe that mercy isn't complete, so I've got to have something to offer. Yeah. But in doing so, we end up bringing judgment upon ourselves, yeah. just like the story. Yeah. It's in giving mercy that we find mercy given to us. Yeah. So I, I wanted to switch gears just a little yeah. bit before we uh, um, before we take our, our leave. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Bible, this new uh, study yeah. Bible, as, as we're throwing out passages of scripture yeah. here and there. It is nice sometimes to just sit down and do some deep study. And you've edited this fantastic volume with liturgical press called the liturgy and life Bible, which has links in the, you know, every study Bible has got yeah. footnotes, but yeah. yours are footnoted to, uh, to the liturgical documents of the church. All, Tell me a little bit about this volume. Yeah, all, all of the liturgical documents uh, of the church. So there's two uh, editors, myself and Father Paul Turner, and I want to make sure I get this right. It's St. Joseph, Kansas City Diocese, and he is involved mm -hmm. with ISIL as well, the International Commission on English uh, Liturgy. He, he's a liturgy expert, and he put together those charts, which, which are just wonderful. It started actually with Liturgical Press, who sought us out and said, we have this idea of a Bible that really focuses on how the Bible's used in liturgy and how worship and liturgy actually appear in the biblical texts. And I thought it was a great idea. It, it took a little over five years for us to put it all together Um to bring together the contributors. Um, Paul and I wrote all the introductions to each of the biblical books in which we look at how does worship appear in this book? How does liturgy appear in this book? And some of them, of course, some books are just far more extensive than others, like the book of Psalms, of course, is just filled with, with worship and, right. and, of course, appears throughout our liturgy, just like the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of John. And so I think for me, though, as a biblical scholar, I really started to think about the fact that even prior to the New Testament, the followers of Jesus were worshiping. And as a Christian church developed, of course, the Gospels came into written form, and, and Paul's letters, of course, were written at an early stage. But Paul's letters were written to be read in churches. Uh, and, and the Gospels I emerged from the oral tradition, and I'm sure it was to say, here's what Jesus did. This is who we worship. And I mentioned him earlier, but Larry Hurtado spent a lot of time looking at how did the early Christians worship and how did they begin to worship Jesus Christ? As faithful Jews, those earliest disciples, how did they come to understand that Jesus was Lord? And I think that what is sometimes forgotten about the Bible is that it is a 
and, and maybe I'm saying this more for academics, <laughs> that the Bible is yeah. really a document for worship. It's for the believing church to gain sustenance from, to guide them, to support them. And then, I mean, that second part that you mentioned, TL, about the Bible being, you know, utilized within worship, and much more of it appears in Catholic worship than people know. But also, we wanted to give a sense of, hey, here's a passage read in church, but you know what? Here's the context for that. And so we've we've tried to, the extent that we can, to really give a sense of how the Bible appears in worship and how it's utilized today in worship with those special charts. And then we also have, um, we think, really excellent um, essays that appear at the beginning of the study Bible. We have mostly essays that deal with you know, the ancient church and ancient Judaism, uh, but also how the Bible is utilized uh, regarding social justice issues, regarding where the Bible and how the Bible is used in liturgy. Um, we we asked Jewish scholars to write on the Jewish liturgy and on Israelite festivals and things like that. And um, we have a couple of really good essays um, on, on ancient worship places too, like on synagogue um, with Jordan Ryan, who's a professor at Wheaton College, who's an expert on yeah. synagogue and Jesus, um, you know, not use of the synagogue, but how Jesus worshiped in synagogue, read in synagogue. And then um, old colleague uh, from University of St. Thomas, Paul Niskanen, and Paul um, wrote a, you know, a book on I a book, an essay on idolatry for, for the uh, Liturgy and Life Study Bible. You know, what is true worship? What is false worship? And so we're getting at yeah. all of those themes, and um, we think, um, you know, people can really gain a lot from it in a parish context, in a Bible study context, in their own personal worship. Yeah. The book, again, the, the new study Bible is the Liturgy and Life Bible from Liturgical Press. We're going to put a link to that over on our social media. We've been talking today with Dr. John Martins, Professor of Theology and Director of the Center for Christian Engagement at St. Mark's College at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. John, it's been a pleasure to have you on today. Well, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed digging into the scripture with you and your knowledge of scripture. It's really wonderful. I appreciate it. It's it's always sustaining, always learn something. It, it's one of the things about being a biblical scholar is that you realize you're constantly learning about the Bible uh, after many decades of studying it. It's pretty wonderful. If you missed any part of my conversation with Dr. John Martins, or you want to go back and catch something that you may have missed, or share the episode with your friends over on social media. Have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. And as we mentioned earlier in the episode, Dr. John Martins and I did have a further discussion where we talked about his area of expertise, children in early Christianity. It's a fascinating discussion, and you can find it by going to OutsideTheWalls.com and clicking the Patreon link there in the top corner. Each and every week, we record an extra segment that we make available to our show supporters. Our Patreon support community helps provide for the financial needs of the show and cover some of the costs associated with the ongoing production of this kind of an endeavor. And in gratitude, we give them an extra segment. You can learn more at that Patreon link about that community and look through some of the older segments that are now available to the general public. 
Now, let's go ahead and turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and church history. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Verbum is your gateway into biblical studies. Whether you are a beginner or you have been studying Scripture with the original languages for years, Verbum has the tools you need to engage more deeply with Scripture. Linking Scripture to the Catechism, to the Fathers and Doctors of the Church, magisterial documents, original language research, commentaries, and so much more, you can learn more at Verbum.com. Our reading today from Scripture comes from the Gospel of Matthew, where we are going to hear what we referenced a few times in the show, the calling of Matthew. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 9. There's a detail about this story that isn't immediately obvious from Matthew's telling of the event. But in the Gospel of Luke, we know that the calling of Matthew and this dinner are connected because upon following Jesus, Matthew is the one who has gathered all of his friends together, the people who are in his community, uh, having been chosen, having received mercy, he is now facilitating mercy for others. When the Pharisees see this, that Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners and those people that they would put on the edges, it's interesting to me that they don't ask Jesus directly. They don't seek understanding, uh, rather they seek division. They're pointing fingers. And they yes, they ask the question. They ask of the disciples, why is your teacher doing this? But it doesn't seem, at least in my reading of it, it doesn't seem to be a genuine question, more of a way to assert superiority. Uh, And how often do we not take the time uh, to actually be curious, to actually seek an answer rather than make an assumption and point a finger and create division. And here Jesus responds to them, knowing their hearts and having ears for himself. He interrupts the question between the Pharisees and the disciples and goes and answers the question himself. It's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. And then he quotes something from uh, early in the the history of the kings, from this was spoken to King Saul. He said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. And so he, he short circuits that conversation 
between the Pharisees and the disciples reiterates to his disciples the preeminence of mercy in this case and gives a lesson to the Pharisees. There is, and he's using to give that correction to the Pharisees, he is using scriptures that they will recognize as authoritative so that they could, again, this is not just to uh, to give them the smackdown and say, ooh, I, I showed them. No, he's actually attempting to teach. He's using scriptures that they will see as authoritative so that they will come to understand, come to seek more deeply what the mercy of God entails. Our reading from Church History today comes from a sermon on the Song of Songs by St. Bernard. Where can the weak find a place of firm security and peace except in the wounds of the Savior? Indeed, the more secure is my place there, the more he can do to help me. The world rages, the flesh is heavy, and the devil lays his snares, but I do not fall, for my feet are planted on firm rock. I may have sinned gravely. My conscience would be distressed, but it would not be in turmoil for I would recall the wounds of the Lord. He was wounded for our iniquities. What sin is there so deadly that it cannot be pardoned by the death of Christ? And so, if I bear in mind this strong, effective remedy, I can never again be terrified by the malignancy of sin. Surely, the man who said, My sin is too great to merit pardon, was wrong. He was speaking as though he were not a member of Christ and had no share in his merits, so that he could claim them as his own, as a member of the body can claim what belongs to the head. As for me, what can I appropriate that I lack from the heart of the Lord who abounds in mercy? They pierced his hands and feet and opened his side with a spear. Through the openings of these wounds, I may drink honey from the rock and oil from the hardest stone, that is, I may taste and see that the Lord is sweet. He was thinking thoughts of peace, and I did not know it. For who knows the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? But the piercing nail has become a key to unlock the door, that I may see the good will of the Lord. And what can I see as I look through the hole? Both the nail and the wound cry out that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The sword pierced his soul and came close to his heart, so that he might be able to feel compassion for me in my weaknesses. Through these sacred wounds we can see the secret of his heart, the great mystery of love, the sincerity of his mercy with which he visited us from on high. Where have your love, your mercy, your compassion shone out more luminously than in your wounds, sweet, gentle Lord of mercy? More mercy than this no one has than that he laid down his life for those who were doomed to death. My merit comes from his mercy, for I do not lack merit so long as he does not lack pity. And if the Lord's mercies are many, then I am rich in merits. For even if I am aware of many sins, what does it matter? Where sin abounded, grace has overflowed. And if the Lord's mercies are from all ages forever, I too will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. 
Will I not sing of my own righteousness? No, Lord. I shall be mindful only of your justice, yet that too is my own, for our God has made you my righteousness. That reading again came from a sermon on the Song of Songs by St. Bernard. That's all the time we have for today. Today's show is brought to you by Phil and Tina Parker and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click the Patreon link to learn more. And until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.